Well, welcome everyone again to lesson number 42. I think I have the right number here. I may have missed one or two, but 42 means we have 10 more weeks and we've been in Matthew for a year. But at least we're moving along. This morning, unless something really happens that I'm not anticipating, we'll be finished chapter 17 next week beginning into getting into chapter 18. So thank you for being here this morning. Thank you for being consistent and being, uh, what word do I want? Uh, I can't find my other word. Faithful, thank you. Hannah, Hannah knows the words up here. Faithful to the word of God. Let's pray. Father, Father, what can we say? Other than thank you, thank you, thank you for this word. Father, everything pertaining to life and godliness has been given to us by the Holy Spirit through your word. Father, you have decreed from eternity that we, your people, would be fellowshipping with you forever. Beginning now and finding that fellowship in fullness when the Lord Jesus returns. And so, Father, during this period, during this season, Father, you're consistently and faithfully feeding us with your word. So, Father, we pray that more and more of the members of the church would be receiving this feeding and allowing it to germinate in us 30 and 60 and a hundredfold. Father, we continue to pray, and we always will be, that this class, Father, will continue to grow as Members of the church, Father, recognize their need of receiving instruction in the Word of God. So, Father, thank you for always ministering to us, always leading us, always caring for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week, we talked about the Mount of Transfiguration, the experience of the humanity of Jesus being transformed or transfigured so that the inner divine glory of the Son of God, the inner divine glory of the Son of God was in the transfiguration for a moment and just to a little extent expressed visibly in the body of the Lord Jesus. And really, this transfiguration is the Lord's answer, at least still in part, but in larger measure, to the question and to the request that Moses made, you remember, on the mountain in Exodus thirty-three eighteen. Remember that request? He said, show me your glory. Show me your glory, Lord. 
And the Lord said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. Now, as I read that, typically we read it apart from an association from the Lord Jesus himself. And it's always a concern and a burden of God that we read everything and understand everything that is associated and pertaining to the person and work of the Lord Jesus, that we recognize that. And so, let me read this to you. And when I read this to you, have in mind the transfiguration. Because perhaps we haven't read it that way. Have in mind what God is telling Moses, because what God is telling Moses and does for Moses, to a little extent, he does on the Mount of Transfiguration, to a huge extent, which will then be fulfilled in the most brilliant extent in the return of the Lord. Show me your glory. Where is the glory of God? As we saw in the Mount, and Mount of Transfiguration, the glory of God is his essential being as manifested in his son so that the glory of God manifested in his son as a man may then also be manifested in God's people who are in Christ. Amen? So we must make sure that we do not see the glory of God disconnected from us, the body of Christ, but intrinsically and infused in us who are in Christ, the body of Christ. So when we read these passages about my glory, it is God's great personal desire and burden that this great glory of who he is in himself may be shared with and in and through his people, which necessitates that his son receives that great glory as a man purchasing a people in whom then that glory will be manifested in those people. This is what the transfiguration is telling us in part. Show me your glory. Read within the context of Matthew 17, 1 through 13. I will make all my goodness pass before you. Who is the visible goodness of God? And I will proclaim before, my, before you my name, the Lord. Who is the Lord? And a name that is given him but above every name, that Jesus Christ is Lord. And I will be gracious. Who is the one who is gracious to us? To whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy. Who, who is the one who has shown mercy to us? We have found mercy in Christ, the grace of God in Christ for us. So last week, in answer to this prayer, the disciples were shown the glory of the divine son in the humanity of Jesus. Now, Matthew, by the leading of the Spirit, will give us three episodes that will in some way declare that glory of the son, the glory of God in Christ in these next, in these, these next three episodes. They are not inclusive of everything, but they are examples of the glory of God in Christ, the glory of God among us in his son, the way God 
ministers to us and associates with us and and deals with us that is all glimpses of the glory of God so let's look at verses 14 to 20 the glory of God in Christ is patient now when they came down and when they remember Jesus and the disciples came to the crowd a man came up to him and kneeling before him and he said Lord have mercy upon my son, for he is, an ep- he is an epileptic, and he suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire, often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples, and they, they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked him, and the demon came out of him. And the boy was healed instantly. Jesus, by the way, is rebuking the demon. And then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why couldn't we cast it out? And he said to him, Because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith of a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there. And it will move. And nothing will be impossible for you. So coming down from this mountaintop, a mountaintop experience. Anyone ever had a mountaintop experience with the Lord? Beware. You will have to come down into the valley. But on the mountain, we see the splendor and the grandeur of the Lord in ways that we cannot see it in the valley. But where does the lush vegetation grow? On the top of the mountain or in the valley? And it is where God's people are that the splendor that is experienced on the mountaintop may then be experienced in the valley among his people. So we are given mountaintop experiences from time to time. Thank God for that. Not just for our own aggrandizement, but for the building up of the church so that what we have received, we may impart to others. Correct? And I know how it is. Oh, I want to go back to the mountain. I want to. Well, certainly we do. But we're not going to be allowed to do it. We must come down. And that which we have received from the mountain, as Moses did, he brings the tablets from the mountain. And what does he do with them? He gives them to the people. So Jesus rebukes the crowd, you see. And the disciples ask, why couldn't we do it? And when the disciples asked they were un- why they were unable to rebuke the demon, listen to Jesus' answer. Because of your little faith. Your little faith. Now, what does Jesus not say? He does not say, you don't have faith. He doesn't say because of your unbelief. Un means what? No. None. It's a pref- pre- pre- prefix that undoes the noun or the verb. Un. He doesn't say no belief. He says, little faith. What does that mean? It means weak faith. It means immature faith. It may mean a particular category of faith that is weaker in that category than it is in other categories. How many of us have experienced that often in our lives where, excuse me, old cars need their, what do you get, uh, radiators flushed out sometimes. Okay. How many of us have experienced 
the wonderful working of God in a particular area as we have trusted the Lord. But then all of a sudden we turn around in this other area and we collapse. Have you ever seen that happen in your life? We see what this says is that faith is not a single thing. It is a multiplicity of ways of living, if you would, or it connects with the total being of our lives. And faith in certain areas is differently matured than in other areas in all of us. And so we are all going to experience from time to time what Jesus is talking about, little faith. And so we remember, why couldn't we heal him? Remember in Matthew ten eighteen, Jesus had said, he told the disciples, you heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, and cast out demons. So Jesus had already given them an authority over this. So they're not exercising presumptuously something that they haven't been given Jesus had given them authority, do these things, one of which is cast out the demons. So they should have been able to cast out this demon out of this boy. Now, there's a whole lot we could spend and time together. And actually, if you want to know the, 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 the truth of it, I had, I think, three pages of notes just to talk about the issue of little faith. And I'm ready to put it together. I'm putting it together. And I just felt the Lord said, leave it alone. I don't want to spend your time there. Okay. I have three pages of notes on this. Why little faith? What is the context of little faith? What to do about little faith? I just felt the Holy Spirit says that's not what I want to do this morning. Okay, okay. See, so my choice, I would have done it that way. So if you're looking for that, don't throw stones this way. Now, the question is why? Because there's a bigger question here. You see, the bigger question is the glory of God. In dealing with our little faith more than what about our little faith. First, the glory of God and dealing with it and ministering to it and walking with us in and through it more than how can we do better and what, can, what went wrong here and how to etc. etc. How is the glory of God in Christ displayed in this episode? It's displayed through his kind and careful, gentle, forbearing, etc., goodness to his disciples. Even though Jesus expressed some exasperation. What do you mean you couldn't heal them? Didn't I already give you that? You see the humanity of this man coming forth. Didn't I tell you? How many of us... Hopefully this is happening. When we have experienced little faith in a particular area, and the Lord has corrected us because he doesn't want us to have little faith. He wants our faith to grow in every area. And how many of us have felt, oh, why, why couldn't I have done this? Whatever, you know. God is faithful and kind and careful and forbearing, etc., with our little faith, much more so than we are with ourselves and with one another. Amen. Much more so than we are with ourselves and with one another. So I'll say this. Do not. May I repeat that? Do not. May I say it one more time? Do not fall for the deception 
and the lie of Satan to browbeat yourself for little faith in any particular area. Don't do it. Don't slap yourself around. No more self-flagellation. Oh, me and oh, me and I wish I could and I should. Stop it. Stop it. It's not God. It's a deception. I'm not going to ask you how many of you do this because I know most of us have done this and many still do it. Stop it. When you experience the revelation that your faith is weak, thank God for the revelation, confess the issue, and ask God to now empower you by his spirit in a greater way in this particular area. Stop moaning and groaning and bewailing your failure. Can someone say amen? We will never be free to have our faith encouraged and built up if we moan and groan and bewail and browbeat ourselves. The enemy wants that to happen. God says, put it away and come to me and let's walk together in this so you can be built up, correct? You see, in spite of their failure, Look, in spite of their failure to use the gift that he had given them, Jesus exercises divine loving patience with the disciples in the midst of their failure. So what does 1 Corinthians 13, 4 say? Love is patient. Love is kind. You remember that? From 4, verse 4, all the way to the first part of verse 8. We give a, Paul gives us a description of love. And here is the love of God at work. The love of God, the expression of his glory in his people and for his people. He's patient. He's patient. So don't, when we exercise a little faith, when we recognize, and we always do and we always will until we leave these bodies, don't become afraid. God knew you had it. Before he saved you. And he saved you. For the purpose. Of giving you this gift. And then working in us. The various areas of this gift. To maturity. And he knows absolutely every aspect. Of our faith in any particular area. You and I may be surprised. But God is not caught off guard. Let's not be afraid. Let's be encouraged. So what happened? Jesus heals the boy and then takes time to minister to the weaknesses. Once again, remember, he's already done this, reminding them that if their faith is the size of a mustard seed, great things will be accomplished. So what does that mean? With this illustration, small faith is not the issue. Small faith in a big God is the issue rather than us having to have big faith. You see, the size of our faith isn't significant. It's the size of the God who is the object of our faith. Let us not try to continue to examine, is my faith big enough? Is it strong enough or whatever? The question is, and the issue is, is God big enough and strong enough in me and my understanding of him? Amen? That's the issue with faith. The size and the strength and the power and the purpose of our God. And even the tiniest faith in the great God will do great works, even to the removing of mountains. 
Now that should encourage us. Because God doesn't say, well, Chris, you ain't got enough faith yet. You've got to have a lot more building of faith. Go to the spiritual gymnasium and work that faith, babes. And when you come back with bigger faith muscles, then I'll do something for you. How many of us are glad that is not the way? But merely this, faith that says, Father. Faith that believes, Father. Faith that knows when I say, Father, God is all ears. Leaning forward. Ready to do a great work. Correct? Just as an illustration. Weakness. It's such a horrible word, isn't it? Weakness. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not. I will if you want me to, but I don't know if you want me to. (laughs) We've done this before, but in 2 Corinthians 12, the Apostle Paul is talking about he knew a man once, whether in the body, out of the body. I don't remember. I don't know. But I'm going to boast of such a man who, because of great revelations, I mean, he was taken up into the third heaven. Remember the paradise. And and he got to see things that were even unlawful to express. You remember? Isn't it interesting? When Paul goes into heaven and sees things that were unlawful and he comes back, he doesn't tell you anything except about his weaknesses and so on and about the church. He doesn't say, now, here's what happened. I had a death experience. I came back and all of these things happened. None of that is biblical. So what about all these movies and books? I don't know, but I will say this. We better not put too much trust in them. We better really put our trust in what God has revealed to us, not what somebody who supposedly has died been with Jesus and come back and has a message for us. Did I say that's impossible? I said we better put our trust in what God says in the word. I didn't discount it. I think we just need to be very, very, very. Yeah, but brother, when that person, he said, I don't. The Bible says that even Satan himself can disguise, Satan can disguise himself as a what? Angel of light. And we saw light. And this light, well, of course, Satan can disguise himself, Jody, as an angel of light. And he can tell you all kind of wonderful things about Jesus and whatever. But none of them will talk about repenting and being, you know, receiving Christ and trusting God. None of them will talk about that. They'll just talk about the nice things. Be careful. Da-da-da-da-da-da. Be careful. Well, there goes that book. I got to get rid of it and we can't go see that movie now. I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. There's one book. One book. Amen. One book. One book. One book. We don't need all the others. And Paul says, because of the abundance of the revelation that was given to me in order to keep me from being what? Puffed up. I was given or given to me was a thorn in the flesh. Three times I asked the Lord, get this out of me. And the Lord said, nope, nope. What was the Lord's answer? My grace grace is sufficient for you. For my grace 
is perfected or power is perfected in weakness. The word in there is the word Greek word en, which means in the location of or by the instrumentality of, and it means both. In the midst of weakness, grace is perfected or made manifest and is matured and by, you know, God's work in that weakness. So what does that mean? Paul said, wow, now I see my weaknesses. Even the apostle had weaknesses. And he didn't bemoan them. He didn't complain about them. And he didn't do what most of us have done. Oh, Lord, please get this weakness out of me. He didn't do that, Flo. He said, I now will rejoice in my weakness. For when I am weak, then is what? God, what? God's strength and power. Am I strong in the Lord is the understanding there. So if you have little faith, Julio, what should your answer be? Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. For here is it another opportunity for the power of God to be manifested in the weakness that I am experiencing in my faith. Amen? So let's turn this thing around by the power of the Spirit in obedience to God and not live the same way we've been living. And let's see what God would do. The glory, 22 to 23, the glory of God in Jesus' death and resurrection. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus says to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. Well, first of all, notice this time Peter and none of them argued with Jesus. Remember that in chapter 16? That ain't happening. We ain't letting this happen. And Jesus said, get thee behind me, Satan, for you, th- you speak the things that pertain to men and not of God. So now they're distressed. Of course they are. For the second time, Jesus speaks about his impending death and resurrection. Why the cross and the resurrection? Well, just to go through it again, the glory of God in the cross and resurrection, because obviously none of the glory of God can come to us and be experienced in us and by us and through us until the cross and the resurrection. God the Father had sent the Son into the world to reclaim his original intention. What was that intention? What is God's original intention for man? Let us make man in our image after our likeness. What does that mean? It means that all the glory of God that he will allow will be in his people who are his image bearers. So we are to be those who are reflective of the very glory of God as it is manifested in God the Son, God the Son of Man. And so God sends the Son to reclaim his original intention of revealing the glory of his divine Son in and through his people, which was a display of the glory of his nature. Remember, his triunity. The glory of God is his triune nature and character. Although the entire life, although the entire life of the incarnate son, why do I say the incarnate son? I'm talking about and emphasizing the glory of the divine son of God in the humanity of Jesus, the incarnate son. Where do we see that? John 1.14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory as, that glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And so the entire life from the very conception in the womb to the very end of the incarnate Son of God was a revelation of the Father's glory. Everything about Jesus' life was the revelation. The conception by the Holy Spirit into Mary's womb is a revelation of the Father's glory in his Son. 
We don't have to wait till Jesus gets born. But that glory, however, is accentuated and culminates where? At the cross. When the incarnate son willingly and joyfully gives up his life so that the glory of the father's love would be displayed through fellowship with his people. At the cross, the glory of the Trinity was on public display as the divine Son obeyed the will of the divine Father by the power of the divine Spirit according to the glory of the Father's eternal divine decree. You see all three persons of the Trinity involved at the cross. You see that also given theological expression in Ephesians 1, 3-14. One of the most marvelous Statements of faith in the entire Bible. Ephesians 1, 3-14. As a result, in the resurrection, God shares his divine glory with his people through his indwelling spirit, the spirit of his son, which fulfills Isaiah 7, 14. What? I will give you a sign, he tells the king. The sign will be Emmanuel. Emmanuel. So John 1.14, in the resurrection of Jesus, especially on the day of Pentecost, the prophetic, the prophecy of Emmanuel becomes, what word, fulfilled in his people. What does Emmanuel mean? God with us. What is Genesis one twenty six all about? God with us. Therefore, we with God. It means joining the divine trinity to a resurrected humanity in fellowship and in communion. So that Second Peter 1 says this. We have been, verse 4, we have been made what? partakers, participants in the divine nature. At the cross, Jesus wore the curse as symbolized in the crown of thorns so that we in him might wear his crown of glory. Remember the crown of thorns? What do you see in the word thorns there? Where do we see for the first time thorns and thistles? Genesis 3, 15. I think it's 15 or 16. Thorns and thistles. What is that all about? Thorns and thistles were a work of, a revelation of, a reminder of, the consequence of sin, the curse. Correct? Thorns and thistles have to do, pertain to the curse. Condemnation. Sin. Satan. The fall. Remember, you're going to till the ground by the sweat of your brow, and you're going to get a whole lot of thorns and thistles in the process. So what is Jesus? What happens? Do you think the Romans knew when those men put twisted thorns together and put it on the uh, head of Jesus as a crown, that they were crowning him with the initial evidence of the curse so that on the head of Jesus... On the head of this man rests the visible identification of the curse so that when he goes to the cross, we can see, if we understand the word correctly, that this one bears the entire curse of his people to the cross. The crown of thorns. 
And so, the cross, and then the crown. And then the crown of thorn becomes what for his people? The crown of righteousness. Amen? The crown of glory. So that the glory of God's Son now sits on our heads as the crown of glory, according to 1 Peter 5, 4. We have now received the crown of glory. We before wore a crown of thorns on us as the unregenerate people of God. But once God saved us, we were brought into his kingdom, and we were given each one of us a crown of righteousness, a crown of glory, which then in the heavenlies when Jesus returns and we are all before the throne of God and in the new heaven and the new earth, we will be wearing crowns of glory, crowns of righteousness. Now, whether they will be actual visible crowns or not, I don't know. It doesn't really matter. But our heads, meaning the authority and everything about us as exemplified in the head will be about God's glory and about his righteousness. But before the crown of thorns was everything about us was what? Curse, curse from head to toe. And so that crown of thorns had to be removed from us, put on Jesus. Jesus pays the price. The crown of thorns goes into the ground, is buried, and never comes back again. So his people can have their crowns of thorns removed and crowns of glory and crowns of righteousness. Amen? Yes, yes. 24 to 27, the glory of God in Christ in his deference. You know what def- deference means? I defer to you. I let you have your way. I let you do what you want. I, 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 I defer to you. I move away and allow you to go. <clears throat> and when they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the half shekel tax went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? Yeah, and, and he said, yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or taxes? From their sons or from others? And when he said, from others, Jesus said, then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea, cast a hook, take the first fish that comes up. What a miracle, huh? And when he even knew it. How did Jesus know that? How did he know it? One answer, a secondary and minor answer is this, because he knew the future. But that's not the best answer, the better answer, rather. Oh, my word. Well, Jesus, doesn't Jesus know the future? Well, yes. Isaiah said he's gone before us. He's our rear guard. He's on all of it. What's the better answer, though? Because before the foundation of the world, God decreed that that kern would be in that fish's mouth at that time. Therefore, it came about. And of course, Jesus also knew what would happen. But he's living by faith. Because God the Spirit has talked to him about this and has said to do it. And he's living by faith according to the ministry of the Spirit who tells Jesus, do this. And Jesus says, okay, here's what you do. Throw your hook in there, bring up the fish, take the coin out of it, and pay our taxes. In this episode, again, some tax collectors asked Peter if Jesus pays the temple tax. What is that? It was a tax, Exodus thirty thirteen is one of the verses, that have to do with the maintenance and the welfare and the support of the temple. It's not the tithe. This is not a tithe. This is a tax. This is something that is levied to every Israelite man to pay this tax. 
Jesus uses the question, does Jesus pay the tax? Hmm, you know, wonder. To explain that the sons of the king are exempt from such taxation, and he is the son of the king. He's exempt. Why? Because, you see, Jesus is himself the temple, and he needs no tax to maintain or support himself. But you see, what he does here, rather than offends, what does Jesus do? He tells Peter to get the tax out of the mouth, uh, get the coin out of the mouth. Look at the deference of the Son of God. Rather than cause offense to those who may not understand, those who don't have enough light, those who haven't had yet revelation from God, Jesus doesn't say, hey, don't pay the tax, man, I'm the, I'm the temple. Don't you know that? And he gets down. He says, I am not here to offend the weaker people who are looking to me and trusting in me. I will defer to their weaknesses and I will walk and work, just as we said in the beginning, walk and work in the midst of their weakness so that their weakness may begin to be exhibited, so my strength may begin to be exhibited in their weaknesses. The deference of the Son of God to us. Have we ever thought about that? How much God the Spirit, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, God the Father, defer to us. And yet how difficult it is for us to defer to one another. And, and, and I will speak as a leader, especially leadership. And I will say this. The incarnation of the divine Son of God shows us many things. Remember this, that the Son is eternally, what does that mean? From everlasting to everlasting, the Son is eternally equal with the Father, co-equals Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Correct? We understand that, don't we? But as the co-equal son, he defers to the father's leadership in the incarnation as exemplified in the cross. Remember Philippians 2, 6 through 8. Which means this, I think. The incarnation of the Son of God shows us this. That he who serves best leads best. He who serves best leads best. All of us to some extent and in some category are leaders in the church. Amen? It's not just the pastors and elders. All of us have leadership positions in some area to some degree in some instance. But I say especially among us who are the leaders. And I think Phil Wyden is the only elder here today among us and the only pastor here. So, But especially for us, the pastors or the elders or the leaders of the church who lead best are the ones who serve best. Why do I say that? Because Jesus is our example. Therefore, to be a leader in the church, I would say, given that, Example of Jesus. First, let leaders learn to serve. And as they serve, God builds into them leadership.
each of these episodes, these three, so much about the glory of God is on public display in the incarnation of the divine Son, in the man Jesus of Nazareth, who lives and obeys by the power of the divine Spirit. All of this is a display of God's triune nature. So there's much more, you know, to say, but I want to make sure we see this. The Son serves best, therefore he leads best. As we leave today, weak faith, weakness among us, deference, all of this has to do with the manifestation and the work of God's glory in us and among us. So let's not be afraid of deficiencies, weaknesses, little faith, and let's be more open to deferring others, not in issues of sin, but in issues of preference and issues that are neutral in and of themselves, caring for others and being very concerned as the Father is concerned about us for the weaknesses of others so that we're not doing something to exacerbate or fan that weakness, but something to encourage God's grace in the midst of that weakness by the way we relate and what we do and how we do it and when we do it and why we do it. So the one with the weakness, that person's heart may be more open to receive the grace of God in ministering and in building up. Amen? Next week, beginning of chapter 18.